Welcome to the Decentralized Web. We cover the latest in decentralized and centralized web technologies through interviews with experts across technology and industry. We're your hosts, Jonathan and Justin. Thanks for joining us as we take a deep dive into what makes consent-based data sharing sexy. This week, we're excited to be joined by Zuli Ramzan, Chief Digital Officer at RSA Security. Thank you for joining us today, Zuli. Be great if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at RSA. Hey, Jonathan, Justin, first of all, a real pleasure to uh, do this virtually. I know I wish we could do it in person, but uh, as many of you know, I've been at RSA now for about six years and a bit of a journey in my role. I started off as a CTO for the company across all of our product lines. Uh, once we spun out the company from Dell, which closed last September as the transaction closed, I took on a bit of a broader role focusing not just on our external facing and forward leaning R&D, but rethinking our own internal security stack and our own IT stack, really digitally transforming RSA to be a truly independent entity uh, ready to kind of take on the world like we used to in the past. And, and uh, uh, it's been super exciting and, and I've uh, really enjoyed the partnership working with you guys and, and, and thinking about what the future looks like. What's it like having to rethink the security strategy for a security company like RSA that most of us have had as a household name for decades at this point? <laughs> you know, it's, it's an interesting puzzle, right? Because you, you're on the one hand, there's an opportunity to kind of rethink everything from the ground up. But then there's also this inertia that you have to deal with. You know, you've been kind of doing things a certain way for a long time under a parent company. There's a time frame, a time constraint by which we want to get everything done because we don't want to sort of forever rely on, on services provided by, by Dell, which we can for some period after the transaction closes. Uh, and so it's been a bit of a mixed bag in terms of figuring out where we want to be, but also being very practical about how we get there. Uh, but overall, I, th I think it's been a fun exercise. It kind of puts me in the shoes of a lot of our customers and, and the challenges they go through in trying to set up their own security stacks. So I think I've got a, a deeper appreciation for some of the struggles that our customers face. It, it seems like you would also have a lot of opinions from a lot of your employees, since unlike most companies, you're, you have an embarrassment of riches in that category. Yeah, that's true. So I, I think that you know, one of the interesting challenges is that, you know, this is a situation where you have to kind of crawl before you can run. And, um, you know, it's amazing that we have a lot of folks who have a lot of great ideas. But, you know, at this point, some of those ideas are number, you know, 33 and number 34 on my priority list. So there's kind of a, a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. RSA's hierarchy of needs in terms of protecting itself. Uh, and, and, you know, we have to get our, our basics up and running. Just like what I tell customers, right, you focus first on the basics, you know, get, get the foundations right. Uh, and then there's room to do more later on. But if you get the foundations wrong, you could have all the fancy tooling and, and strategy in the world, but your, your environment will be riddled with issues. And, and uh, uh, I'm kind of living through that right now. And it, it's kind of hard to tell people like, you know, sorry, I can't do this yet. And we're not going to be able to get to that in a while. Uh, but, uh, but one day, one day at a time. Zilli, that, that leads well into, uh, into our next question here. You know, RSA has been a staple since really the web was born. Uh, how have you really seen the web's progression from the early 90s to uh, some of the opportunities and challenges we see today? Yeah, that's a great question, Jonathan. You know, I, think, I think when I first remember you know, using the web, right, it was kind of the early 90s. At that time, the thing to do was make a personal homepage. You, know, so you had a few people making personal homepages. I remember opening up you know, like VI and like literally typing in you know, open bracket HTML and actually literally writing. That's how I wrote HTML code. 
uh, being really excited at what that web page looked like. But at that time, there was not a lot uh, you could do on the web and you could kind of share information. Uh, and it was of interest maybe to more of the academic community. And it really was born out of academic roots if you think about the way the web was first formed. And really at that time, the, the, the big conundrum was could we enable online transaction on the web? And that was a big open question, I think, in people's minds. That, that hadn't been figured out yet. And certainly at that, at that time, there was a lot of effort to get that right. Uh, the big advance that effort was with the SSL protocol uh, that was invented initially by Netscape and then evolved um, over time uh, to SSL 3.0 and some of the variants that we look at today. Uh, and, and the key thing to making SSL work was public key cryptography because it enabled people who had never met before in this big decentralized thing called the internet to find a way to establish a root of trust or find a way to bootstrap trust on the internet. Uh, and, and that was a very powerful notion. And once SSL kind of came into place, once the underlying cryptographic primitives were there, that essentially created a, a force multiplier in terms of creating a trustworthy web. And once the web became more trustworthy, people were not afraid to transact on it. And that was a watershed moment. And at that point onward, you know, it's, the rest is kind of history in some ways. The dot-com era was born. You know, everyone was buying things online. Uh, and and uh, even back then, I don't think anybody could have predicted where we would be today, which was just you know, a phenomenal trajectory. Yeah, and I think uh, I recall a story you telling about how RSA was part of some of those very first e-commerce transactions back in the mid '90s. Yeah, so it's a really amazing story. It was, uh, you know, there was uh, a fellow named Tahir El Gamal, um, now called the father of SSL. He actually was one of the early employees at RSA. He was a person at RSA who was taking some of the kind of mathematical ideas and transforming them into a clean form factor, a nice library, a nice set of SDKs that others could use to implement the RSA algorithm. Uh, once he left RSA to join Netscape, he realized that he needed some of those same implementations. So he called RSA and he literally used those libraries. And the very first e-commerce transaction, at the heart of that transaction was RSA and, and the libraries that we had built. Uh, and and you know, from that point onward, from every e-commerce e transaction from that point onward, we've played a crucial role. And, and, and it's a very proud legacy to be part of uh, in, in, in kind of enabling technology to hit the masses. I just don't think that people understand sometimes how essential that public-private key cryptography has been to the expansion of the web, but then in consequence, essentially the expansion of the entire economy, society. I mean, so much of that could have never happened without it because you couldn't have commerce on the web without it. And if you didn't have commerce on the web, you we would have lost all of this industry that evolved around it. And it, it just couldn't have happened without the security. And it's funny because so as you well know, um, so much of those core concepts, we still use exactly the same way today when you boil it all down. And um, it's, it's just incredible how far that idea has gotten us in so many different places. Yeah, you're right. It, it's just yeah. profound. I mean, I, even like when I been in RSA now for a while, you know, I, my parents still quite don't know what I do for a living. And that's, that's I think, forever, probably the case <laughs> for many of us. us. I think that, that uh, you know, it's, but, you know, so I was trying to explain the impact of RSA. I was like, you know, look, if you open your browser and you go to the configuration settings, you will see RSA in those settings. That's true for basically every browser. And in fact, you know, I, I would argue that 
Um, RSA, if you look at the technology that RSA has built, put to market, conceived of, et cetera, is probably the most widely deployed technology vendor, not just software vendor, but technology vendor on the planet. Um, just look at, you know, it's more than Windows, more than Linux, it's like every Windows system, every Linux system, right? Every type of computing system on the planet that needs some form of security capabilities at some point has a little piece of that legacy in it. Uh, and, and that's a profound like notion. When I, when I first started trying to contemplate that, it was it was almost too big to contemplate because it was so uh, so massive. But you're right that it's some element like we don't have that 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 trust at the core, that, that trustworthiness rather at the core. Um, you can't build on top of that effectively because that that's the foundation. Otherwise, it's a house of cards. And I think uh, uh, you know today you know, e-commerce and, and many of us I think you know would have. You know, I remember back in, in the in the kind of mid '90s or late '90s even. You know, Amazon. Everyone was like, "Oh, this 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 will never take off. Like, who's who's gonna buy books online?" And you know, and, and this was uh, you know, or buy anything online. They would they would never. And, and somehow, yet it all. And today, you know, I, we we couldn't have survived. I I don't think I could have survived the pandemic without like the ability to just click buttons and get stuff delivered. You know, yeah. to, to my home. And- Any Amazon guilt went away in the pandemic, unfortunately. I am trying to get back to the mom and pop stores now that you can get out and walk around, but it was definitely a, a helpful tool. Uh, Zuli, you had said something interesting when you're talking about really how valuable uh, and necessary a lot of the PKI and security tools were back uh, when e-commerce was coming up on the web and that it lended itself really well uh, to a decentralized web. Uh, one of the challenges and one of the goals of this podcast is to talk about really the progression of the web and how it started out decentralized, became centralized, and now you know we're collectively all working you know to bring it back to its original goal of a decentralized web. Uh, can you talk a little bit about where you saw that um, you know that really switch from decentralized to centralized and some of the reasons behind that? Yeah, that's a, in fact I think you're right there, John. That there's been this kind of pendulum shift, right? So the initial conception of the web, you know, Tim Berners-Lee going back into the kind of, you know, mid nineties, it was about democratizing the internet, enabling everyone to be able to access it. Everyone to be able to create web pages and, and communicate over HTTP and, and so on and so forth. And, and, you know, I remember first meeting, you know, Tim Berners-Lee or Sir Tim Berners-Lee uh, in, in 1997, it, it sort of, it was at MIT, they had a, like an orientation event and he, he was, you know, everyone kind of goes around the room and says what they do, right? He's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm Tim Berners-Lee. Uh, I, I developed, you know, helped develop a version of the HTTP protocol, you know, next. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking like, like he was so modest about what he had done, right? But he effectively had, had, had brought the internet to, to like a whole new level. Uh, but I think his idea at the time was to make it accessible, right? He, he was trying to make it accessible to, to many. Uh, you know, I think right around kind of the first, I would say, you know, five to seven years of that, of that existence was kind of very, you know, utopian in the sense that everyone was sort of doing things online, that it was, it was decentralized. And then I think you started to see the shift as sort of the, the, the big power players, you know, the fangs of the world began to take on kind of more and more of a concentration of internet traffic, that we moved away from that sort of democracy to more of like an oligarchy, you know, where we had a handful of, of organizations that effectively control data. And you know now I, I'd say that if you if you ask any teenager, and, and that's something that we wouldn't have not thought of in our in our when we were teenagers, like but I have a teenager right now, and he views this as one of the biggest problems of his generation. He's like, look, I mean, right. they have a handful of companies that have my data. And, I, and by the way, and, and you would have thought I would have told them. No, he actually realizes on his own. He told me this, and I was like, oh my god, this is what a, what a profound moment to see that. Right. And that's you know his his friends talk about this issue a lot. 
and, and that's going to yeah. be their, their climate change in a way. Like that's the, the big problem that they're facing is how to deal with digital privacy when it's coming to the hands of just a handful of vendors. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Yeah, and I, and I think, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing is that the, all of the, the technologies and, um, and concepts that RSA has pioneered with cryptography um, kind of have to be evaluated in this new, this new context because essentially this, this notion of where your data is and who has your data, it's, it, you've kind of like let people in the door, so to speak. You know, you're, you're not effectively saying, this is mine and I want no one else to see it. You're essentially saying, well, this is my data. You just happen to have it all. And I think the question uh, for you, the first question, do you think that, do you think decentralization is the answer, an answer? What's, what's your perspective on it? Because I think you have a really unique uh, position that you're looking at the world from being at RSA. Yeah, no, that's, a, that, it's, I think it's, it's the right way to think, which is that ultimately I, I look at decentralization to me, it's always an answer. Like there's never the answer in, in technology. You have to look at the problem you're trying to solve, but it's actually an answer for a very important big problem, right? It's, it's not, it's not a small answer. It's, it's a, 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 an altering answer in many ways. And I think for me, what, what's interesting is that we've always known this was important. I mean, if you go back decades ago, the conception was to do decentralization. Um, even the early pioneers in cryptography had this idea in mind. The idea of public key was about how do I enable people who've never physically met to be right. able to, to, to have some way of, of establishing trust, right? And, and that, when you say physically not mean, that, that's exactly what decentralization is. We're not in the same place. So we need some other way to get around that problem. I, I think that there's been a handful of interesting factors, like the underlying technology, we've known how to address this problem, but there's been a sort of a broader set of market forces that have made that much more accessible. So to me, I think number one, the idea that today, if you go back 20, 30 years ago, there was no natural way to carry around cryptographic credentials, right? People talked about smart cards and, and whatnot. Those never really took off. Today, we all have mobile phones. Mobile phones have secure enclaves. We can put cryptographic key material on a mobile phone and you solve the distribution problem in a much more ready fashion. The second piece I think is that, you know, besides just talk, talking about, you know, the phone factor, the other factor is, is a societal need for the problem. If you think about it, going back 20, 25 years ago, trying to tell the average person why they needed PKI versus a password was a difficult thing to do. I mean, we all know why you need it, but the average person didn't understand, hey, I got a password, I can. this kind of works for me, I, I don't need something that's more fancy. Today, no one's gonna tell you that they love their passwords. They know too many of them, too many accounts, I can't keep track, You know, it's constantly asking me questions, I can never log in again. And so that, that problem as well, has gained societal acceptance. The third factor I think has been this idea of there being a deeper level of appreciation for privacy. You go back 20 years ago, people didn't care about their data being everywhere. They thought, oh, whatever, it's a few things here and there. You know, today you have like, yeah. you know, the heads of all these companies are testifying in front of Congress and sort of telling people like, you know, and I'm always amazed when, when these, these discussions happen because they're like, you know, sir, how do you have all of our data? And, he, and then they're like, well, because you gave it to us. You literally just, you signed in, you're right. giving us all your data. Like that, that's how we have it. We're not, you know, hacking into your computer. You're willingly telling us what you had for dinner that night or what you had for breakfast and, and where you were last week. And then the final thing is that, um, you know, with, with some of these elements of decentralization becoming more popular, things like, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain certainly taking off. And now there's NFTs and all these other interesting, uh, you know, vehicles. 
people are recognizing that there are there are technologies out there for helping uh, with decentralization, some of which, by the way, we could have done many years ago. There's nothing maybe conceptually novel about blockchain, per se, except in the context of Bitcoin with, with distributed consensus. But other than that, we've known how to achieve and solve these problems for a while. But people are recognizing, hey, there is a way to, to move forward here. New problems now get presented, though, because I think that the, the benefit of centralization is that it... it when you apply things like cryptography, as you pointed out, we're kind of naturally designed to, to work in a more decentralized way. But when you have data centralized and applications that are kind of siloed to it, and there's an, it kind of an, an inherent trust between two parties, like at least I know who it is that I'm sending my data to and storing. But when you introduce pure decentralization, um, it's like the whole stack is decentralized essentially, and that it creates some interesting new challenges. And I was curious um, what, how you see those challenges, and and also what you guys are thinking about doing to solve them. Right. No. It, and to me, that's the heart of the matter. Which I think decentralization has created, but always tends to create a level of complexity. Right. And complexity, you know, is, is typically the enemy of, of security. When you have complex systems, they're more likely to break down and have resilience issues and, and so on and so forth. Um, and by the way, resilience may be less, less the case, but there's just enough going on that you have to keep track of a lot more. And so I think you've introduced a level of complexity. And if you're not careful, that complexity can then seep into the user experience. Now, historically, the security community has never done a good job of thinking about user experience. If you go back, you know, I remember first trying to encrypt something with PGP and, you know, I, I was like literally doing a PhD in cryptography and I struggled to get PGP to work and correctly encrypt data, right? So, uh, you know, you go back and you think about the average person trying to make these, these pieces work. It was hard. It was a very famous paper written a number of years ago um, called Why Johnny Can't Encrypt, uh, which is a paper about how, you know, they, they basically did a usability study on PGP and, and they found like, you know, pretty much nobody or very few people were able to successfully encrypt data using PGP. Uh, and it wasn't meant for the average user, right? It was meant for the, the specialist. And so to me, I think that the two things we have to really focus on, you know, one, I think you have to have um, some core technology layers to help manage the complexity of decentralization. And the second piece is to create a nice form factor for an end user where they don't have to think about all these different layers. And, and I think we've seen a lot of progress across the world in other areas. Like if you look at, you know, all your file sharing applications, I remember somebody telling you know, Dropbox looks really simple. How, how can it, you know, I was like, well, the complexity is under the under the hood, right? There's a lot of complexity behind the scenes to make it seem simple at the onset. Uh, and I think the same thing is going to be true with, with, with this problem is we have to really focus on simplifying um, the user experience and managing the complexity for the user. So I know we're working really heavily right now on, on areas like verifiable claims and thinking about the, the whole world of digital identity. In, in this new realm. And I think our customers really need this problem to be solved because the world in many ways under the pandemic has become more decentralized, right? We're not meeting in person as much anymore. We can't establish trust together and things like onboarding or credential verification and, and whatnot are really critical problems for organizations. And we have to find, I think, better ways to solve it. Absolutely. And, you know, in, in, in this world where we're now really interfacing virtually with a lot of different services, uh, identity in a way has been very centralized. At, so if you take an organization, they'll have a single sign-on system and that system works within that organization. But most people, you know, us today, I don't know how many different services I'm going to 
interface with today, it's going to be a lot. And that really applies to everybody. And I, I would end up having different identities, different logins at, at most of those. And how does uh, this next revolution of decentralized identity uh, play in? And um, RSA really pretty much invented the identity space in, uh, in a lot of ways. And it feels like you are all very well placed to continue that work. And we've been working with you on some of it, but um, I feel like, again, you guys have identified, you know, this is where the world needs to go and we're going to lead the way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're spot on. I mean, I, you know, you can go back and look at the history of, of digital identity and in many ways, one of the key problems I've always found with, with digital identity is that it really is, is, is kind of counter to the way that we normally think of identity. Something that's my identity is intrinsic to who I am as a human being, right? I mean, it's like, if you look at, you know, Descartes, like I think therefore I am, like it, it starts with I, right? Everything always starts with my identity. Um, and yet in the digital realm, users have no control over their identity, right? It, it's something that's controlled by maybe one person. So if you look at the early days, even with the first days of PKI, it was your certificate authority that controlled your identity. When you looked into things like username and password or single sign-on even, the early days of single sign-on, you know, when, when it was Microsoft Passport, you know, yes, you may you simplify one part of it, but now all of a sudden Microsoft controlled your identity. Then we, we move from that model to more like the Liberty Alliance model, you know, which led to things like SAML 2.0. And there you had a handful of organizations controlling and, and RSA played a role, obviously in the original PKI world, was a key member of the Liberty Alliance back in, in the kind of early 2000s. Uh, and then the, the, the next evolution was sort of the, the connectivity revolution. Like, can we start to use things like, you know, Facebook Connect and, and so on? And, and, and that made, and on the one hand, put a little bit more control in terms of user being able to create their identity initially or establish it, but then took away control in how that identity was managed. Like, you know, some people would, would wake up overnight, find out their Facebook account was suspended for some bizarre reason, and then realize that, oh, by the way, everything you were using Facebook Connect to access is now no longer something you can do because Facebook has disabled your core account, and that created a whole set of problems. And so I think we're kind of in this, this final epoch, if you will, where we have to really focus on allowing individuals to control the destiny of their identity, being able to manage it, being able to think about how their identity evolves over time in the digital space. Uh, and the beauty is that we, we have the technologies in place. We've known how to solve this problem for a while. The, the societal factors have kind of come into play. And obviously, working with, with, with you both, we're trying to figure out how we can now bring that to the masses and solve some really fundamental issues. And maybe that's a good, a good segue. We're really working on marrying digital identity with data. So the same way that, you know, your data, uh, your, you know, that you have one identity that you could use with all the services that also similarly, your data set is kind of inherently attached to it because that's kind of the natural extension. And when you can join the two, therein lies the power, so they say. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an example where I am who I say I am and the data that I'm presenting to you uh, for consumption or to share uh, or to collaborate on is actually truly my data representing uh, exactly who I am. Because I think, you know, one of the things that we have to wonder is really twofold. One, can we trust people to be in charge of their own data? What safeguards can we put in place really to help our moms and our dads uh, make sure that they're not, you know, being exploited? And two, as consumers of data, 
And as applications move into this decentralized uh, you know, format, how can the applications trust that the data that they're receiving is accurate and truthful? Yeah, I think this is the heart of the matter when it comes to identity in general. When you think about our identities, they're really predicated on there being a history. In, in many ways, we carry that data with us wherever we go. So when I, let's say, see somebody that I, that I know, right, or I'm supposed to meet somebody somewhere, you know, my first thought is not, uh, can you please show me your driver's license and you know, tell me your last four digits? No, it's, it's, we don't think that way, right? We're like, well, okay, I know I'm supposed to meet Bill here. This is what Bill looked like last time I saw him, you know, and, you know, and, and so on. We already agreed we're going to meet. So all these factors come into play. So when I see Bill in, in, in real life, I know that's, in fact, what, what's actually happening. Um, and, and I think that the same needs to be true with, with digital identities. If you think about it, our digital identities are the focal point for our digital history, right? It's like all these transactions you've done, all these things you've done online, all of our data elements kind of come together under this one umbrella and are tied together by that digital identity. So if you don't get digital identity right, you can't get decentralized data right. Those two go hand in hand. Right. Uh, and, and I think that that's, that's really what, what's been exciting about our work together is that we're really you know, tackling an important problem that that's going to have silent implications. And, and uh, you know, that, that, that's super yeah. exciting. I know it really is exciting. And, you know, one of the questions, once you start explaining this and, you know, this is something where Justin and I always pick on our mom uh, and not in a bad way, but to say, if mom understands it, then we're on the right track. Uh, and when we talk about this problem, you know, one of the things she always asks is what does this mean for big companies, the big tech conglomerates out there who make, their business uh, really on collecting our data. How does decentralization, do you think, impact and change the landscape, um, you know, by, by giving people control of their data as opposed to organizations just collecting and amassing it from us? Yeah, I think for some organizations, you know, there'll be a lot of resistance, obviously, to the idea because their whole business model is predicated on you being the, you're, you're effectively the product, <laughs> as, as, as they say, right? Um, but, but I do think there's a lot of, room out there and there are many organizations where they have your data but they don't really want it they don't want the liability of having yes. it they don't want to deal with it they don't want to deal with the mess and so on uh, and i think healthcare is a phenomenal example of that uh, if you yeah. look at in the healthcare space you know uh, the healthcare system has my medical data uh but quite frankly they don't they don't need it they just have it so that when i when i go in for an appointment there's some way to access my medical record if there was a way to decentralize that to enable let's say me to control my own medical data all of a sudden you know, I could not only control my data, but when I show up, I'll have a much more complete picture. Uh, and that's a place where it's almost like it, it's counterintuitive because you're centralizing, but the centralization is happening by the individual as opposed to right. the entity centralizing it to a degree. Uh, and, and that's the right way to think about that space. And, and to me, there's a lot of spaces like that. You know, we, we've seen over COVID-19 with, with um, you know, many of our customers trying to do things like employee onboarding or employee validation. Uh, so we had one customer and, and they were struggling because, you know, it's a hospital and you have new people, they're trying to hire more people to kind of deal with the COVID surge, trying to bring additional staffing. Um, but all of a sudden, as soon as somebody leaves their home in one state and tries to drive into another state could be neighboring, that creates a lot of complexity for the, for the medical system because you can't just let somebody work in a hospital when they show up. There's a whole process of credentialing and validation and, and so on and so forth. These are the kinds of problems that can be tackled much more readily. They, they used to be tackled manually before, but with the right elements of, of thinking about decentralized identity management and decentralized data, imagine a world where somebody can bring their credentials with them, get validated very quickly, and be ready to help patients within a matter of, of hours or even, even days versus today where that can take six months to a year. 
Yeah, we've seen this together uh, over at NHS as well, who's really been a pioneer around decentralization uh, in, in working with our organization. So uh, certainly applicable. One of the other things that we you know feel is a, a huge benefit is the ability when you centralize an individual's data, uh, they create such a rich data set. And by giving the ability for those individuals to make decisions on who has access to it, uh, you can end up creating this entirely new set of products and services. You know, we call it a universal data set. So one of the big advantages that organizations with a lot of data have today is if a good idea comes out, they replicate it, they have the data set and they can capitalize on it. And it makes it a very challenging environment for entrepreneurs in particular. By decentralizing data around an individual uh, and by giving them the ability to give consent and take consent away from applications, but always building their data set inside their, you know, uh, whether it's a pod like solid uh, or, or whatever container data container it might be, they now are, you know, in charge of switching from one application to another and really helping rekindle what I think is, you know, a lot of challenges that have been taken away from the entrepreneurial market. Uh, so that for me is always just a really, you know, super exciting thing uh, to watch happen. Yeah, I think it's like we're building a brand new tool, right? And, and that tool can be used to solve a, a ton of problems. It, it's an enabler, just like public key cryptography was back in the day, right? It, it wasn't, you know, public key cryptography was maybe marginally interesting on its own or, or somewhat interesting, but it became a lot more interesting when a set of problems were created around e-commerce and, and, and whatnot. And so in many ways, I think what we're building is, is that, that Swiss Army knife for the digital future, and that's that's super exciting. I mean, like, I, you know, to me, that, that that's going to really enable people to gain agency over their digital identity, agency over their data, and I think the consequences of that will be profound. Yeah, and you know, the I think that when people hear about taking your data back, they tend to to think about a few companies. You know, the ones that probably are in the news most often as you know the big offenders. But in reality, your data is just scattered everywhere. And it's really scattered across all of these companies and services that you don't think about. And in those silos, they're useful for very specific things. But that's still all of your data. And if you have that data together, centralized around you, as you put it, Zuli, you could do a lot with it. And actually, so could they. You know, the, these, uh, whether it be some services that you work with today or new entrepreneurs that are able to show up with new ideas who don't have to get permission from some huge company to say, well, can I access that person's data? They're saying I can. They want me to use it. And they say, well, no, that's not part of our terms of service. They're going to have to use us. You know, essentially, we're kind of democratizing uh, innovation again because the data is not sitting behind a, a walled garden. And instead, the person is in a position to say, is this a service that can give me value? And if it is, I'm willing to give them access to this subset of my information as long as they give me that value. And if I don't like what they're doing, or if I don't need that value anymore, I will take the access away. Or I'll switch to someone else who isn't kind of keeping me as a user just by the fact that my data is there. So it's hard for me to switch. And what kind of world might we have 
if uh, you know people are are able to switch services because they have the data, will those services behave better or provide better value because of it? Uh, you know, I, I I think so. And so let's just pretend for a second that it's ten years later, and all the work that we're doing. Um, in decentralization and giving people control of their data uh, has been successful. And so now people have this. People have their data set centralized around them. They have different applications and services in, in the ecosystem that are leveraging it. Um, what are we worried about then? You know, us who are working on these problems now what might the next problems be in 10 years if we're, if we're successful? You know, that, that's a phenomenal question. And I think, uh, you know, to me, obviously, it's, it's going to be, first of all, a long, uh, tricky road to get there. Because there's a lot of hurdles to overcome along the way, uh, which I'm excited about working on you know, with you. And, and I think we'll, we'll be able to help tackle many of those. And I, I look forward to a future where we actually have pervasive use of these capabilities across the board. You know, I think, you know, in that world, uh, you know, one, I think that a lot of the challenges around decentralization will start to come into play. Like there is a challenge of managing decentralized environments. Uh, there is a usability challenge. Like I think to a degree, you know, you, not that people can't make choices about themselves, but often don't know how to make the right choices about their own security. We've seen that in the past. We will see that again in the future. And so we're going to have a new set of technology challenges. Like how do we think about the analytics on that data in the right way? How do we think about preserving privacy in the context of those analytics? How do we provide more value to people over time uh, by looking at the data they have? Uh, and, then, and then more importantly, I think, you know, people, uh, when, when the data becomes a key commodity, you know, how do we again prevent people, people and organizations from finding clever ways to siphon that data back and, and, and recreate the model that we were in today? Because I think you're, you're absolutely right that at a fundamental level, uh, for this whole approach to be successful, it's really about ensuring that individuals are the ultimate, you know, owner of, of all their data and, and they, they think about their data life cycle. And, and, that, and that's a very compelling feature, by the way, I think in a world where today, you know, I, I use a cloud service for something and it's got like all my photos, you know, they change their terms of service, they start charging me more money. You know, that, that, that's, that's an issue all of a sudden, I gotta go get the photos back, download them and push, put them elsewhere. You know, I think that the data gravity issue, um, you know, will be an interesting one to, to look at. If all my data is in a pod and I wanna do some analytics on it, how do I bridge the analytical capabilities and put it in proximity to the data in the right way. Because that's the typical challenge with analytics. It's not about the fancy algorithm. Often the most basic question is, do I have the right data? And then the second basic question is, can I get that data to the algorithm somehow? And, and in a decentralized world, that, that's a lot more of a challenge than it is in the centralized world. Absolutely. I mean, a, a lot of our focus in the standards area has been on uh, data interoperability, you know, different applications in a decentralized ecosystem being able to read and write data. And I think uh, similarly, if you want to do that securely, you're interfacing with a lot of different security machinery running in different servers, running on different stacks and making that just work technically is hard. And then to circle back to what you said at the beginning, making it usable by everyone is actually even harder. And uh, I, I, I think that we're going to be challenged uh, to, to do that, you know, to, to keep making 
this technology consumable and keep it simple and not over-engineer it so it's, it's, it's tough to, to actually utilize. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think to a degree, you know, I, I, I think, you know, because we're starting to think about usability now, we have a much better chance of being successful uh, in the future because that to me is, is where the rubber typically meets the road is, is, is people don't care about the cryptography or the verifiable claims or, or all the decentralization. The average person just wants to get their files or they just want, you know, to have their medical records or they want some, some kind of, they want to be able to type their credit card number in online or whatever that problem happens to be. Uh, and I think to, to the extent that people don't even know how this stuff works, that's when you know you've succeeded. And, and, and RSA is a great example of this. I mean, most people don't know that there's this fancy array of, of mathematical operations that happen at the core of every transaction. That you know, we, we see these transactions being very simple. I just you know bought, I bought something on Amazon. It took me 35 seconds. I realized yesterday I needed to, you know, like it was funny strike. I was I was in the kitchen making trying to make something. I reached for a tray and my pizza peel. This wooden thing fell out and broken half, right? And, and it's like, oh no, but you know what, literally between the time I took the pizza peel and threw it out in the recycling, I ordered a new one and it was like a few clicks, right? It was, it was all done. But what belies that simplicity, that transaction is a tremendous amount of mathematical complexity that's been hidden from the average user. And I think our goal is to do the same thing in the decentralized world where the complexity is potentially even greater, but the opportunity to simplify it for the average person will lead to just significant and monumental consequences. Yeah, we've seen this in healthcare, really, when NHS came to us, uh, they had a very particular use case around a young woman uh, who was about 13 years old and had chronic asthma. And she had been treated, I think, something like 42 different times uh, each time as you know a first visit because the hospital systems were so siloed. Uh, she would go into urgent care, should be treated, uh, and then should be dispatched and she ended up passing away. So I think, you know, all of us, and one of the reasons that we've keyed in on healthcare, uh, it, 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 there's really two goals. One, you know, in order to have decentralization take off, you need people actually using decentralized technologies. Uh, and when you can go to a country with a compelling use case like Tamra's uh, and really address that, you accomplish nationwide deployment you also accomplish something that's very relatable to anybody out there in the world. We've all, I'm sure at some point, whether it was ourselves, our children, our parents, our friends, struggled with you know, just siloed healthcare data. Uh, and when you look at the centralization of that information uh, around an individual, someone like Tamara would most certainly be alive today. Uh, so the, you know, the actual practical benefits are huge. In doing that, you have some of the most complex uh, systems in the world at a social health care nation. You have issues like you've discussed today around verifying both the individual uh, as well as ensuring that the data is accurate. And, you know, that's really where, you know, we've keyed in on uh, trying to bridge that gap between pods and, and the key systems that exist. But I think one of the other things that this creates is an entire ecosystem uh, you know, through decentralization. So you centralize around an individual, you have to worry about making sure that, you know, the data is protected. You have to, you know, bridge that gap between, you know, extremely complex and uh, archaic systems in some, in some ways to get down to this decentralized uh, point. But once you do, you can really make a difference. 
Yeah, and, and I think that that exci- that future is is incredibly exciting to me you know, at every level. I think that you know, to me, w- w- one of the interesting challenges, and I hope we get there, is you know we, we want to move it away from the individual and more towards a service that you provide them with. And, and that's that's right. kind of you know if you do your if you do your job right, you become kind of invisible, and and nobody cares anymore about how this all works. They just assume it, it works, and, and they now build on top of it. Uh, and, and and that's right. really where our biggest opportunity lies in enabling that future because to me you know cryptography all these techniques are just there to bind an identity with or some type of entity with some other piece of data or some some attribute or set of attributes about that that, that person or that, that entity and, and if you do that right <clears throat> you can start to enable applications around reputation like how do i know what data is, is where how do i move away from the core crypto pieces and now start to bootstrap into a whole world of applications that, that are just, uh, you know, to your point, could could be life saving. Yeah, yeah, and, and and actually, we were able to, you know, together as part of a, um, a a prototype, demonstrate an application showing up in a decentralized ecosystem that a that a person wants to use. In this case, we uh, we demonstrated it at, at the NHS, and it was able to present its own decentralized ID, you know, as, as an entity in the ecosystem. And as part of its ID, when you dereferenced it, there was a credential, a verifiable credential that was issued by the NHS that said, this application is safe. You know, we, we believe this is safe and it's helpful for you. And it was verified using some infrastructure that RSA has created, you know, a service that RSA created. And the developers who worked on hooking that together were not decentralization experts and the people that used it had no idea what was going on it under the hood really they just saw um here's an application that can work with my health data and it has this check mark next to it that's green and when i hover over it it says you know trusted by nhs you verified by rsa a lot like what our browsers do today and and i when when I saw that all come together, that was my first thought uh, to your point about just having this stuff just work and know it's there if you really want to dig in. I think we've already seen that we have the pieces and parts to do that. And uh, it's it's really exciting watching it happen and it'll be fun watching it proliferate. Yeah, I, I, I can't tell you how how exciting it is. And it kind of mirrors, you know, the first question you asked Jonathan was about the way the web was initially formed, the early history of it. And it started off with, you know, Tim Berners-Lee and the original HTTP protocol, which when you married that with the cryptographic capabilities of RSA, really took the web and made it mainstream. And then you put a form factor around it with the browser and the whole ecosystem. And that's what we know today as the web, right? For, for most average people. Yeah. And here we are now, you know, a couple of decades later, uh, maybe with fewer hairs on top of our heads, maybe more gray hairs on our, on our faces. But we look back and, it, and we're kind of in parallel repeating that, that idea again in a fundamental way. It's again, you know, Tim Berners-Lee and now Solid, right? And, and, and RSA yeah. trying to provide cryptographic underpinnings and, you know, Gennaro kind of being able to package that into a nice, compelling use case like, like the browsers did back in the day. And to me, it's, it's, those are the critical ingredients you have to have protocol, the right crypto, and then the right packaging around those two elements to bring it to the masses. And if you do, yeah. we're going to be, you know, tomorrow we'll be in a world where this will be the norm, right? And, and just like people use the web today without thinking about all the complexity, 
I'm, I'm convinced that tomorrow people will be using the solid protocol in ways that they were not even anticipating that even today we won't even anticipate. But it'll, I think, lead to, again, a, a dramatically profound future where we'll solve some really critical problems. Absolutely. Zule, I want to thank you so much. It's certainly an exciting time uh, where we see decentralization becoming more mainstream. It feels amazing to be, you know, sort of alongside where RSA was in the mid 90s, helping, you know, e-commerce happen. Uh, It feels equally exciting today to be working with you folks to enable the decentralized web. So I want to thank you again. It's been a pleasure having you on our podcast. Uh, We look forward to catching up with you and RSA on some exciting things that you'll be doing in the future as well. Hey, thanks, Justin. Thanks, Jonathan. This was phenomenal. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Decentralized Web. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us across social media to keep up with the latest in data sharing and decentralization.